What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another podcast. A lot of, ton of shit, honestly. We got new music from Kali Uchis, Slow Tie, and the long-awaited ret- return of Macklemore, funny enough. Uh, new Amazon Prime miniseries, Daisy Jones and the Six. Creed 3, the latest Rocky film, the latest Creed film. Chris Rock's long-awaited selective outrage Netflix special where he talks about Will Smith. A lot to get into there. As well as the return of The Mandalorian Season 3 on Disney+. And I'll have another pod coming in a day or two with my final Oscar prediction. So make sure you look for that as well. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. And check those time codes below. Let's go. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Kali Uchi's third album, Red Moon and Venus. First album since the end of 2020. The R&B slash Latin pop singer who's had quite the steady rise since the debut album Breakout back in 2018, Isolation, an album that made a lot of top 10 lists. I actually had one of the songs off that album, Just a Stranger, featuring Steve Lacey on my top 10 songs 2018. Huge coming out party record. And then her uh, all Spanish language second album in 2020 ended up spawning a like, genuine TikTok hit, Telepatia. Just a genuine, like, classic TikTok smash. So, obviously, eyes would be on. What would that next Kali album be? Would it be Spanish again? Would it be English? Red Moon and Venus is mainly English this time around. And with a lot of expectation, and obviously, I think, a bit more commercial attention following the TikTok success she's had, I gotta say I was disappointed in this record. Not necessarily that there's anything wrong with it. It just wasn't quite what I wanted from Kali. I think... um, more than anything, like the reason I like a song like Just a Stranger so much, like I like the song she sung with Tyler the Creator back in the day so much. I think Kali has a really like intriguing pop sensibility when she brings it out. The problem with Red Moon and Venus to me is that this kind of leans away from that. It and I think part of that is also Kali isn't like the most amazing vocalist ever. She sounds fine. She sounds strong within her lane and she knows like to play to her strengths but it doesn't end up always making the music i want to hear the most so i feel like when she really leans into like pure r&b it it's just a bit sleepy a bit drones on a bit for me and that's what makes the i think exceptions to that and red moon and venus so tantalizing and also makes the rest of the album so frustrating because there's really awesome still signs of brilliance from her when she does this a little bit more like endlessly is a song I thought was really good because that's really more of like a pop funk track. You know, it's not really like all the other stuff. Uh, Worth the Wait with Omar Apollo. I have some obvious star power there. I like that one. Also, surprisingly, I thought Fantasy with Don Tolliver, um, her, her, her partner as well. I'm not, I'm not even a big Don Tolliver fan at all, but I thought they sounded great together in that kind of duet. And it's almost like an Afropop song, though, you know, in terms of the production styles. You know, I think when Kali kind of blends genres together and makes just intriguing music, her persona really comes out and the music really shines. But when it's the more simpler R&B songs, it, it just doesn't really do it for me. But I'd love to know what other people think, because I feel like I'm just kind of in the minority on this record. It just didn't really sit with me and just kind of uh, felt a bit sleepy to me. But let me know, what did you think? Were you anticipating this album? Did you like it more than me? If so, why? And for more music reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Slow Tie's third album, Ugly. New record from the rising, ascendant UK rap artist out of Northampton, grime artist. Slow Tie got a lot of love really ever since that debut album, Nothing Great About Britain. And then, of course, following that up with 2021's Tyron, which we reviewed on the show here you know what the next slow tie album would be i wasn't really sure you know and to this point i think slow tie has been an intriguing voice and a standout voice within uk hip-hop which is no small feat given how vast and uh fast-paced uh uk hip-hop uk drill has been grime has been the last you know five years but slow tie has definitely stood out i think a big part of that is he has a singular voice he does not sound like anyone else his style of grime is incredibly unique, but also the lyricism that Slow Tie brings out. Obviously, 
the first record, nothing great about Britain, a lot of pointed political and societal comments. Slotai is not afraid to make a name for himself, and that has gotten him in trouble in the past. But in general, like he, there is punch, there is bite to his music and his songwriting, and that has really just attracted people to him. And Ugly, uh, I think surprisingly, is a bit of a genre blend, a bit of a genre smash, which I was not expecting from Slotai, but he does this really well. I think it was a really good fit for him. And Ugly gives you kind of like a pump, uh, sorry, a, a punk and you know rock pivot in a certain sense. It's still still grimy. It's still rap, but there's other stuff going on. I think right off the bat, you kind of get introduced to what you're what you're in for with Ugly. You know, the first track, Yum. Uh, obviously, you got a lot of energy, a lot of aggression from Slow Tie, which is not not a surprise. But when that drop comes in, it almost becomes like a garage song. And then following that up quickly with Sooner, which has this like really steady drum tempo and Slow Tide giving you this almost like melodic flow, but still a great performance. Following that up right away with Feel Good, which is almost like an indie rock song, which I think is incredibly catchy, but like the guitar line is noticeable. It's very synth heavy. Uh, the hook might be a bit repetitive, but honestly, it was like almost like Vampire Weekend-esque. Like, I don't know, like where this came from but slow tie seems to really like wear this suit well and i think if you think about like the energy that he brings to his performances that he brings to his songs it's always been aggressive in your face stuff and i feel like that does kind of translate to other sounds you know i would not put slow tie in the bucket of like the rage music shit we get over in the states from people like playboy cardi and yeet right now but Slow Tie kind of aesthetically has some of that stuff going on, and it's perhaps even more genuine and more convincing than some of the other people doing it in the U.S. So it's kind of an interesting parallel, even if they're not directly connected. Um, other songs I really like, just you know, keeping it going, Never Again, that opening vocal sample, really noticeable. The snares, I think, on that song are really cool. Uh, Fuck It Puppets is probably the most traditional like Slow Tie song when you think of him as a rapper. Uh, happy, like, I think, lyr- lyrically. Probably the most reminiscent of Slow Tie being an introspective and personal guy with what he gets into on that. Um, you know, Falling, probably the, I guess, the hardest The Rock gets on this. You know, there's distorted guitar. Slow Tie eventually works up to screaming vocally on that track. There's just a lot going on with this. And, you know, I think it definitely warrants multiple listens, and so do his other albums. But this, these are, I think, just as engaging lyrically as they are sonically, you know, with the production choices and the genre switch-ups. It's just another added layer, another added component to, like, Slow Tie's music now. And what honestly makes it even more intriguing. I don't know if I necessarily like to listen to this album more than Nothing Great About Britain. I probably don't, but that's just to my taste of preferring the more pure grime stuff. But clearly... Slotai is a voice to continue to invest in, and he's just an incredibly intriguing talent, you know? And it, it's really cool that UK, UK hip-hop can have all kinds of people succeeding right now. Of course, Tyron in 2021 was the number one album in the UK. And nowadays, of course, no one's hotter than Central C, but there's room for, for multiple people, and I would love to see Slotai find the success Central C has found in the United States. It remains to be seen about that. But either way, let me know. What did you think of Slow Tie's new album, Ugly. Did you like it more or less than his past work? And for more music reviews, rap, UK hip hop, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Macklemore's third album, Ben, named after his given name, Ben. Macklemore's first album in over five years. It's been a minute since we heard from him. You know, I think there's a lot to unpack with this one, both the album itself as well as Macklemore just in general. And even though he hasn't made new music in a while, and he has said that the pandemic contributed to that, he has been around. Like He opened up for Imagine Dragons last year, which I think kind of speaks to like the push-pull of Macklemore, where recently touring with one of the biggest pop rock radio groups we have these days, Macklemore was catering to his pop fandom and his general fandom, and that's always been at odds with... Macklemore's ability and clear interest in being a more traditional rapper and student of hip-hop. And that is incredibly evident once again on Ben as the record. 
the kind of push pull that Macklemore has faced sonically, you know? Uh, and I, I just find that quite interesting. You know, Macklemore is 39 now. He's incredibly wealthy and, and, and secure in his future. You know, he has three children. But, you know, during COVID, he did relapse and he gets into that on his album. Of course, Macklemore's substance abuse uh, struggles throughout his life has been a big component of his lyrical subject matter in his music. And, you know, on the other hand, I think when Macklemore gets away from those clearly personal, clearly very specific things he can talk about regarding himself, it's where he kind of starts to lose me when it's like that more, uh, you know, positive outlook music, you know. I think ultimately at the end of the day, Macklemore, he's he's made corny music for a while. And sometimes those are big smashes and there's nothing wrong with those songs, you know. But those songs were made with Ryan Lewis. You know, people know this, you know, 10 years ago. Macklemore is not working with Ryan Lewis anymore. And I think nowadays, the Macklemore pop music you get, much like the Macklemore pop music we got five years ago on his second album, Gemini, it's just kind of corny, cheesy stuff. And it's just not, not interesting music to me. And there was a few brief moments of Macklemore, you know, backpacking, getting back to his old old ways as a rapper on band. I was like, oh, yeah, it's still there. But like the push pull with, with having to serve multiple masters in terms of his audience was so evident. And I think just right off the bat, track one, Chant. God, that is a corny song. That chorus is just so, so grating. Like, I just can't stand it. It kind of beats you over the head with it in terms of its, you know, cheeriness. It's just, it's just frustrating to hear a song like that. The next song right after that, No Bad Days. Again, it's really cheesy. It has no bite at all. And I, don't know, I thought of Kids Bop when I heard that. And then right after that, you get something that's really cool and inspired in 1984. It's very conceptual. You have Macklemore's um, kind of rapping persona come out, very reminiscent of old songs like Irish Celebration in terms of a more like um, aloof, uh, you know, uh, a bit, uh, actions and, and, and persona. It's just much more interesting. Than, than the radio shit, you know? Uh, maniac, pop rap, acoustic guitar line, but just like super mad lyrics. It's like, I, I just think none of that stuff is, is special at all. You know, Day You Die with Fantagram, just corny, like I'm sorry. Um, but right after that, you have this really sick three-strack run. You have Heroes featuring DJ Premier doing the scratches. He didn't produce it, but he did the scratches. You know, Mac talking about his, uh, you know, his reverence for, for, for hip-hop. And Macklemore's always been a student of the game. And, you know, after everything happened with Kendrick Lamar at the Grammys, Macklemore followed that up with the Unruly Mess I've Made, which was a backpacker, dusty, boom-bap rap album. Macklemore's like, hey, like, I, I am about this rap shit. And he is a student of hip-hop. And he's, you know, felt the, the need to make that shit clear, right? And it's fun when he just kind of makes songs in that mold again like Heroes, like the next song, Grime, which you know has a buckshot reference to one of his older tracks, but the storytelling on that song is really fun too. The track right after that, I Need, you know, kind of getting into his sneakerhead uh, ability, talking about dropping day ones and kind of just like lampooning like baller, like tip, like traditional like rap culture and stuff like that. I think those three songs sound good. They're dusty. And Macklemore sounds really inspired on those. Those are the three best songs on the album to me. That's like the most interesting section of this. You know, the song right after that, you have Faithful featuring Annalie Chapa. Macklemore kind of talking about the pandemic and, um, you know, what, what led him to relapse in a certain sense. But the Annalie Chapa feature is just so, so random to me. Like, obviously, he had to buy that. And I don't know, it just like of all, of all the people to pull in, it just feels like a very odd fit to me. You know, at least when he had Offset on Willy Wonka, on Gemini in 2017, like getting an offset feature in 2017. Obviously, no, no one's arguing with, with making that choice, but NLE, of all people, not that NLE doesn't have his merits, but like just feels like a weird fit with Macklemore, especially the, you know, 2023. I don't know about that one. Um, yeah, I thought Lost slash Sun Comes Up was really two tracks. Um, you know, Mac talks about, I think it's on the second, second song, Sun Comes Up. He talks about like what would happen if he died. Like how would people talk about him on social media who would send out the rips and stuff interesting premise right i think he is a good enough storyteller to get into something like that i thought that was pretty interesting too but 
other than that, uh, nothing really stood out to me. Murray, I guess it's an inspired poll. Shout out Murray, you know, shout out Dreamville. But um, yeah, overall, it's like I think Macklemore, when he doesn't get in his own way, as kind of like a incredibly transparent storyteller, he doesn't get in his own way, and when he doesn't lean in to the easy stuff, the radio plays he can still make really fun traditionalist rap songs like he did on The Unruly Mess I Made, like he did a few times on Gemini, and like he did a few times on Ben. You know, and I think there's not a whole lot more we can ask from him at this point. Again, he's just so secure in his life at this point. He's not, he hasn't been in this, the major label system ever. You know, he's pretty much removed from the music industry, producing this, co-producing this whole record with one of his close confidants. Like it's, he, he, he can do what he wants. And I just wish he felt more secure and not needing to do the more poppy stuff. And maybe that's what he wants to do, but I just don't think it's quite as good from obviously the highs of the stuff on the heist, which then again, shouldn't be too big of a shock, but that's how I feel. But let me know. How'd you feel about this? We're even checking for Macklemore. It's been a while. Um, how'd you feel about Ben compared to maybe the more recent stuff post the heist? Let me know. I'm for more rap reviews, more music reviews. Subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of the new Prime Video drama series, Daisy Jones and the Six, starring Riley Keough and Sam Clavin. Based off of a popular novel, this is a oral history of a fictional 1970s rock band that broke up at the height of their fame. And there's a lot of, I think, obvious parallels to what this series is based off of or, or, or uh, taking inspiration from obviously it's completely fictional as well as real life works that this will certainly call back to um i think overall you know we've gotten three episodes so far on prime there'll be three next friday then two and two for a total of 10 episodes in this season and i think for what i've seen so far if you're like super interested in this book which i haven't read but if you're super like invested in this book it's probably doing enough for you but to me, it doesn't stand out quite enough to beyond like its obvious inspirations. I think those inspirations are in real life. The clear pull here will be almost famous. The classic Cameron Crowe movie. It's hard not to think of that as something that just does this better and will always do this better because that movie is a classic with iconic acting performances, iconic uh, sing-along moments. Shout out Tiny Dancer. Like that, that premise is just done so well in that film. Doing it again here, you have your work cut out for you. The other side of that is, of course, what is Daisy Jones and the Six, this 70s rock band? What is this based off of and the story of how this band broke up in terms of uh, you know, love triangles and you know issues with substance abuse and fame and everything? Well, it's so clearly... And the music and the aesthetics of this band in the show, it's so clearly based off Fleetwood Mac around the time of rumors. Stevie Nicks, Lindsey Buckingham is Riley Keough and Sam Clayton. Like it's so clearly inspired by that, but I don't know if it rises above just being pastiche. You know, I think an issue with, with what I've seen so far is like the songs in Daisy Jones and the Six, they need to be, and these are originally created songs by, you know, songwriters that were created or hired to, to make these songs, because obviously we didn't hear any songs when the novel came out, of course. But these songs, I don't know if they're convincing enough that, like, this is, like, quote, the biggest band in the world at the time uh, in, you know, taking place within the real world of the 70s alongside other bands like Rolling Stones. You know, Bob Dylan is invoked in the first episode. Like, it's taking place in our world, but I just don't know if the music is convincing enough that you're, like, super believing in this band as being what they are. Uh, I think the acting, though, is probably the the best thing about it so far. Riley Keough, I think, is everyone's pretty familiar with her at this point, and she is bringing a bit of history to this, obviously, coming from the Elvis Presley family that she does. And then Sam Clayton, I think, is very convincing and effective as a, like, traditional, like, 70s rocker. He definitely has the look. He's a traditionally handsome guy. Like, he he's convincing as a frontman of this band before they uh, meet Keo's character, Daisy Jones, and she gets brought in. You have Timothy Oliphant as a person in the record industry that they come across. Uh, Suki Waterhouse is part of the band as well. Um, I think it's all like fine and like looks looks pretty nice, but I just don't know if it's like 
quite interesting enough or quite deep beyond beyond the premise like once you understand the premise and it's pretty easy to understand it because again it's so familiar to stuff people already understand i just don't know if there's enough to it but if you're really into these actors or you've read this book or you're intrigued by the period setting you know obviously it's fun to be in the 70s definitely 70s rock is my favorite rock music like i would love to spend more time with it for sure but i'm not sure if i'm completely captivated just yet but yeah, I'll be curious how this uh, release plan works, you know, dropping six episodes in the first, you know, you know, eight days, you know, is that enough to make people want to finish it? We'll see. Let me know. Are you a book fan? Are you coming to this fresh? How'd you feel about those first three episodes? Did it do enough for you to make you want to keep watching? Uh, and for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of The Mandalorian Season 3, the premiere Chapter 17, Episode 17, The Apostate, directed by Rick Famuyiwa. Man, it's been almost, it's been over two years since the Mandalorian Season 2 finale at the end of 2020. And we saw Mando for, what, two and a half episodes in Book of Boba Fett, but even that was over a year ago, so it's been a minute. Of course, Star Wars was still in our lives a lot on Disney Plus and the TV front last year with Book of Boba Fett, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and of course, the illustrious Andor season one but mando the crown jewel of the franchise for now is uh back and i think we had a very effective premiere i'll just say it out front but i'm gonna go into spoilers for this and also talk about my thoughts and feelings and expectations and hopes for the rest of the mandalorian season three so spoilers ahead but uh yeah i thought this was an effective successful premiere kind of similar to the first two season premieres of The Mandalorian, it's not necessarily a wow you or knock your socks off episode in the sense of doing anything you haven't seen The Mandalorian do as a series before, but what it does do is remind you of why we like The Mandalorian so much, why we like these characters, these dynamics, these rhythms on this show, and it reminds you why that works, because a lot of these components are just so successful and fun to be with, and that's great. I just like being in this world with these with the, these buddies, you know, uh, Din and Grogu, respectively, of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think I'll just kind of go through like the beats of what happens. Like, right off the bat, you know, we have this scene where we see the armorer, Mandalorian character from the watch, you know, making a helmet, doing this ritual for a new foundling. And I think it's like kind of a fun like fake out. You think this is like young Din becoming one of the Watch, becoming a Mandalorian, but it's actually not. It's a present day scene, and Din ultimately saves the day. And it leads to this, I think, really excellent looking set piece where this gigantic uh, aquatic crocodile-esque beast attacks the uh, Watch, attacks all the Mandos. And I think it looks amazing, fantastic CGI, very reminiscent again of the season two premiere where we see the uh great dragon attack uh the tuscans and whatnot um i think seeing the tuscans fight the crate was really cool and also like a really fun lore moment this was just kind of like an anonymous beast we didn't have any connection to before so it doesn't hit quite the same but i think it looked fantastic for sure especially when it was but i think laying laying the smackdown on you know flipping around and stuff it was pretty cool um and you know from there you kind of have the armorer and Din talking and kind of reiterating Din's new quest, new mission to go to the homeworld, go to Mandalore in its ravaged state and cleanse himself effectively. And this is something that had been stated in the book of Boba Fett during the Mando episodes of that series. But I think it's kind of smart to quickly rehash that for the average mando viewer because i think there's plenty of people you know you could probably say millions of people out there that'll watch mando season three that maybe didn't watch book of boba fett at all and as much as it's not exactly hard to watch two and a half three episodes of book of boba fett to be completely caught up if you care about it to that degree i don't think it might it's a big deal to briefly restate uh you know this just like later on we hear about Moff Gideon's current fate, you know, New Republic Tribunal, something that's actually restated from uh, Book of Boba Fett comment as well. Again, just letting you know, just in case you didn't watch Book of Boba Fett, I think it's smart to not really beat people over the head with, you gotta watch everything. Marvel's certainly learning this lesson right now. Um, but yeah, going from this anonymous planet, 
Din kind of relearning his his new mission to be accepted. Kind of funny that he's still kind of uh, uh, fixated on re being able to rejoin the, the Watch and be accepted as a Mandalorian in this this clan again because he's making his own path with Grogu. So why does he really care about the fact they took his helmet off and pissed off these people who have not been the most kind to him in recent moments? Think back to season two. I don't know. It's, it's a, Din's motivations for this are a bit unclear to me, but I don't think it's a big deal because it's just a way of getting Din to Mandalore. And I can't wait to see Mandalore in its, you know, post-purge Imperial bombing state. I mean, that sounds really cool and fun path of, lore path to uh, explore for for you know the hardcore star wars fan absolutely um then you have speaking of lore on the way to navarro we see grogu noting purgles in hyperspace the the space whales of course introduced in star wars rebels i mean that is fucking catnip for a star wars rebels fan as we know the purgles played a huge part in the star wars rebels series finale in terms of what happened to Ezra and Grand Admiral Thrawn. And this is effectively a nod to, assumingly, what we're going to see and learn in Ahsoka later this year. So that's just cool to see the Purgles, even the silhouettes of them in hyperspace, kind of acknowledge a live action. Really exciting. Um, then we get to Navarro, and Navarro is a very different place from the Navarro we know from, especially season one, right? It's much more lavish and teeming with life as this kind of raucous, uh, successful trading spaceport you know under the stewardship of grief cargo who's like now the magistrate and running things that that was really cool and honestly like a really fun like a lot of background of seeing lots of different aliens that's kind of been a criticism of some of these shows especially andor where you don't see as many aliens uh as you'd expect on these types of shows and it makes sense it's hard to and commit to putting everyone in makeup all the time, but it is fun to see it feel like a really like lifelike rich world um, out there in the outer rim of space. I thought that was cool. And grief just rocking an amazing uh, lavish cloak Lando vibes for sure. He has droids literally holding his cloak and keeping it off the ground. Fucking awesome. Uh, from there, you know, <laughs> Uh, Din decides he wants to resurrect IG-11 to take with him to Mandalore. Din's fixation on getting IG-11, kind of funny. I didn't think that was really even remotely in play after he self-destructs at uh, the end of Season 1. But kind of cool, I guess, foreshadowing for his eventual return, you'd have to imagine. In the process, Din encounters some uh, Anzellans figures, uh, the you know the little, little dudes, the Babu Frick dudes from Rise of Skywalker. Nice nod. Bring in a, another alien species and some funny humor with Grogu there. Speaking of good Grogu humor, I mean, in the scene in Grief's office, he's force spinning himself on a wheelie chair. Amazing. Uh, force grabbing food and throwing it in his mouth. Like Grogu, like the use of Grogu, it's always a less is more thing, but man, like still one of the most ingenious uh, inventions ever in terms of pop culture. I still can't get over how successful it is. Um, yeah, so get this pirate standoff, which I think leads to a really exciting dogfight out in space. Looked amazing, on par with the, you know, the 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 space fighting you see in the movies. Introduced to this new pirate king character who looks like Swamp Thing. Let's go, and then we get to um, uh, Kalamala, a Mandalorian planet, uh, assistant of the Mandalorian planet, which is the Kriz homeworld. So that's of course where we find Bo-Katan chilling in the castle. You know robbed of all her forces just kind of moping around and doing the villain slouch pretty overtly on that throne it'll be i think it's a big question if uh bo-katan and din will be friendly in the future after din has the dark saber and thus the control of uh the normal mandalorian's loyalties and you know of course we know the watch figures will factor in so Another Mandalorian Civil War of sorts is probably on the horizon on this series, but I'm really excited to get to Mandalore and just explore that. You know, judging off the trailer, we're going to see more about the Order 66 flashbacks and Grogu's uh, survival and how that happened. And Ahsoka said someone took him uh, from the temple. Who did that? Obviously, that's very exciting, very interesting. You know, I'll be curious if we get any more movement on the Imperial cloning stuff, which connects to the sequel trilogy. 
DVD on that. But man, I mean, this show just, you know, the lone wolf and cub of it all is just really, really successful still. And like, I think the rhythms of the show are on full display with this premiere. So I really can't wait to see more. And I just have a lot of faith in, you know, John Favreau, Rick Famuyiwa, and everyone who's, you know, running the show. So really can't wait to to be with it week to week. So happy it's back. You know, there's not a whole lot on right now until Succession kicks off at the end of the month. So it's, I think, coming at a really good time as Last of Us is tailing off to really, like, dominate as we expect it to. Let me know what are you most excited about with season three of The Mandalorian? How'd you feel about this premiere? And for more TV reviews, more Star Wars, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with reviews slash reaction to Chris Rock's seventh stand-up comedy special, Selective Outrage, live premiere, live broadcast on Netflix, Saturday night. Uh, unusual uh, release. I'll be talking about the special itself, obviously the Will Smith of it all, and if this kind of live debut is a new path forward for Netflix. I'm going to kind of get into it from a few different angles, but this is my immediate reaction right after uh, the special aired. I watched it live, and it did work completely fine. There was no technical issues. That was that was awesome. Um, and yeah, this was obviously trending on Twitter. There's a lot of people who wanted to see how this went, primarily because of the Will Smith stuff from a year ago, of course, but also, I mean, I think just general comedy fans were paying attention to this because this is the first Chris Rock special since Tambourine came out on Netflix in 2018. You know, he had a two special Netflix deal from way back when Netflix was like really into that getting comedy, uh, getting comedians deals thing. And this second special took a very long time to come out, but it's finally here. Selective outrage. And, you know, I was just curious how well it would go because it had been so long. And I actually liked Tambourine a lot. I thought it was a really um, perceptive and inward looking special from Chris that was both funny but also like really mature in terms of him getting into how his life changed, his family changed, going through his uh, public divorce, things like that. Obviously, with selective outrage, everyone wants to hear Chris talk about the slap from Will Smith at the Oscars last year because he hasn't really talked about that at all to this point. I think it's very smart of him to save it for his work. And a year later, we're at that point, you know, live in Baltimore at a special taping. And you know, I think the special, just right off the bat, I think it starts quite slow. And in general, the, my general reaction to it is I thought it got better as it went, but overall was quite inconsistent. And part of that inconsistency is just a lack of, like, good laughs. You know, I think Chris gets a bit kind of roundabout and scattershot with how he's, like, going through his jokes. And, like, the setups are not super, uh, not super specific, not super, like, like put together it's a bit stream of conscious which is it felt a little um unpolished compared to what i'd expect from like prime chris you know right like obviously he's someone who his pers- uh, reputation needs no introduction as a static meaning of course you know i still think the uh, bad apples joke is perhaps my favorite like stand-up joke ever like it's it's just so so, so good but at this point you know chris he's a wealthy guy and he's getting older and he's talked about this you know question you know years years ago i was like do you think you get less funny when you get older and he's like he hope he said he hopes not well i don't know i think i think i think it, it happened to him because the the early stuff it's just like all the jokes he's like very animated very energetic i think chris is you know really moving around up there uh look, looks great you know had a lot of energy a lot of animation to how he was telling his jokes but he seemed really enthusiastic about stuff that just wasn't super funny you know um right off the bat very predictably he gets into some kind of generic jokes slash commentary about triggering people and woke stuff. And it's like, he's not really saying anything super like negative or even like offensive. It's just that he's not really like saying anything that funny, you know? I think to most people that would be the main sin. If you're going to say something fucked up in a Santa special, that's okay. If you nail it, if it's a good joke, you know, like the humor will land, the humor will fly. Um, but these like weren't these were neither offensive comments really, just kind of like talking about the way things are in society these days. Um, but he's not really making like I think a firm enough like joke or comment on it. So I don't know, just it, it just felt kind of dull, honestly. And I, I saw that sentiment shared online a lot. You know, getting into stuff about like companies having politics um, and how rather than donating money to uh, a charity of my choice, why don't you just 
take that money off the list price. You know, it's like it's kind of like basic stuff. It's not super funny. I think the best thing out of all of this, you know, he sets up this concept of selective outrage as the theme for the special was where he makes a joke about um, the people that still play Michael Jackson songs, but don't play R. Kelly songs anymore. One of them just has better songs was like the, the laugh line. Like it was a funny punchline. But overall, like I don't think any of this early stuff like really, really, um, really land just because it's not like super, super intelligent, super, super new either. Like we hear these kind of jokes a lot. Um, from there, like I think it gets like really, um, really scattered shot. Like he gets into like some comments about opioids and like social media and like fishing for likes. And he eventually brings it back around to uh, talking about like fake victims which you like when you hear that he's like oh we need some victim shaming thing is it going to go back into like a, a cultural critique old man shouting at the cloud rich man speaking ill of society like no he, he doesn't actually go like the late period Chappelle route which is what i was afraid of he doesn't go down that road route and he actually has some really funny stuff where he talks about white men being the the, the biggest culprit of being fake victims then making fun of the capital riots calling it white planet of the apes stuff like that that was funny but then it's like on the kind of like one-off stuff like he very briefly says like when did snoop dogg become morgan freeman like makes like kind of a one-off one-liner about that um there's some funny stuff about um i guess like the funniest like like cultural like modern day like critique he makes or, or comment he makes is like joking about how um there's no uh there's only mixed race couples on tv nowadays um, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, the Meghan Markle stuff, I think, was good. It's kind of an easy, easy joke, easy punchline, um, but it, it was also pretty funny. Like you didn't Google these motherfuckers, like about how Meghan didn't know the royal family was racist. Goes on to call the royal family the OGs of racism, the Sugar Hill Gang of racism. I think that was probably the best joke to that point. That was, I think, just really smart and just it landed pretty well. From there, he's kind of like you know playing off Meghan Markle, talking about um you know, white, having white in-laws as a black person. And he goes into the Kardashians. And like, I don't think any of this was like super funny. It was okay. Talking about how Christian lets everybody in, whether you're Lamar Odom, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, it's all right. Like, it's nothing like super, super new either. Um, also, again, the Kardashians obviously are easy punchlines, not like the most uh, intelligent joke I've ever heard. Um, then we start talking about trans stuff. Uh, trans trans people you know obviously with caitlin jenner being the way in there and that's where like again like the the blinders go up like, oh, is he gonna pull a dave and just start punching down and not being funny but just kind of being a dick no he doesn't really go that way either he makes some i think some jokes but it, it felt a lot more tasteful than uh the, the dave stuff we get you know i think um the cover two joke i did i did chuckle i thought that was pretty funny um and Chris makes it clear where he stands politically and 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 socially and um, in terms of these these issues, which I think is nice. And overall, I think he kind of handles that handles that pretty well. Where it's like it's funny stuff, but he doesn't really go too far far with it. And I'm kind of glad he didn't go too far with it because I just don't know if he has that in him to like tell a more intricate but also edgier joke with that kind of subject matter. So it's probably for the best that he didn't wade too deep. To be honest, no matter where you stand on that as like a, a subjective jokes. I think it's probably the best that Rock uh, played safe with this kind of material. You know, I think at this point, though, it begins to pick up. You know, I thought the, the stuff about abortion was really funny, making it very clear that he's pro-choice, but also making it very clear that he believes it is, in fact, the killing of a baby, and there's no um, debating that part. Then also reiterating his stance while saying that he's paid for many abortions, that was very funny about how it's not just a women's issue. I've paid for many of these things. It was pretty funny stuff. Um <laughs> you know, kind of elevating this up, saying that I, actually, I believe that you should be able to get an abortion up to like age four. Fuck trimester. I'm talking semester. Like that. Thought that was really great. Um, <laughs> from here, I think it gets probably like the most tambourine s, the most like reminiscent of like great rock, because he starts talking about his family, starts talking about his kids, and how his his easy daughters, his grown daughters, uh, were spoiled kids. Like that. That was like great. You know. Um, <laughs> How he uh he took his kids right out. He, ne he never never brought his kids to the hood, you know. Rich kids with all their rich white friends, et cetera, et cetera. Kind of takes a while to really like progress through all this, but I think it's like really funny, just because like Chris is able to I think deliver these jokes with such like genuine passion and like like it feels real. It feel it feels funny, you know. Culminating with um, I think like two sides of the coin, right? His mom, who's still alive today, was having to go to the veterinarian. 
to get dental work because when she was a kid, it was illegal to go to a white dentist. Whereas nowadays, Chris Rock's daughter is going to culinary school overseas. Quite the dichotomy. Um, all of that, I think, really plays well because he's really ragging on his, his, his kids. And I think it was like hilarious shit, honestly. Um, again, not like it's like the most intelligent jokes ever, but just like the way Chris tells, tells the jokes themselves, I think is pretty, pretty enjoyable. Um, you know, from here, it's, it gets a bit scattered shot again, you know, talking about like dating younger versus older as a wealthy person, but as an older person himself and like some funny jokes, but nothing, nothing crazy. Um, talking about Beyonce, um, that's where he makes a second reference to not making a rapper mad where he's like, I'm not, no shots at Jay-Z. I love the rock. Um, again, alluding to the Will Smith stuff, which he obviously closes with and getting into that now, you know, he calls Will Smith, Suge Smith right away. I thought that was funny. Um, you know, uh, did it hurt? Yes, it hurt. Uh, it hurt so much. I got summertime ringing in my ears still really funny. Uh, then he kind of talks about like, the size difference and it's not so much like, humor so much as like rock almost is like venting out publicly for the first time about what happened you know will a much bigger guy will audition or will played muhammad ali i played uh pookie in new jack city you know which got a big laugh that was pretty funny um then he brings it all around and accuses will of participating in selective outrage himself you know talking about red table talk and how that all went and how chris was hardly the first person to go after will uh, you know, some stuff like that. But like his kinda like his big takeaway is like it was like some bitch ass shit to use this word. And it's like it's alright, you know? And then then unfortunately like this joke leaked like a day or two ago where um you know Jada had been mad at Chris for doing the Oscars after Will did wasn't set up uh Will Will wasn't nominated for concussion and Chris actually flubs this joke and says Emancipation, which is his newest movie. Um obviously concussion was in twenty fifteen. Uh, and Chris actually acknowledges live taping in the moment. Like, oh, I messed up the joke, which I thought was which was funny. That's the quirks of live TV for you. Uh, and then he concludes with, you know, I just watched Emancipation just so I could see uh, Will get whipped. And it's like, ah, well, I understand it for me personally. It's kind of a, nah, I don't, it's not really that funny. You know, I don't know. It's kind of a weird joke. Um, and yeah, he kind of just drops the mic and lets it all hang out there. And like, Overall, I would say this is definitely a worse special than Tambourine. It doesn't compare to, obviously, his early stuff from the 90s and 2000s. No, no way. And I don't know if like, I'm like super satisfied about like the one-year build-up to Rock talking about Will Smith for the first time. But I was kind of captivated the whole time when he was talking about Will. Maybe that's because I just was hanging on every word, wanting to know what he was going to say. I don't know if that really speaks to like, the form of this as a comedy special or like the intricacy of the jokes. Like overall, I don't think it's like the the best written special hardly at all. But there is naturally like an added element to selective outrage that goes beyond the traditional special and the traditional rollout for, for comedy, you know, and it's just, it's a unique situation. So I don't know, you know, I mean, I would love Chris Rock to continue to make specials, but then again, like I think his general material when he's talking about like society, it's kind of whatever. Like there's that completely flat Elon Musk joke at the very beginning about Elon, like getting his dick sucked so much. He has like negative cum in his system. It's just, it just was never funny the entire time, but you could tell Chris loved that joke. Like, I just don't know if he has his finger on the pulse as much anymore, which I don't know. He's, he's a wealthy millionaire. He's been at a long time. It's okay that he's not as busy as he used to be, but I mean, it, it, he does, doesn't, it didn't feel nearly as tight or as polished as tambourine. And that was, you know, about five years ago so i don't know on the other hand i'd rather him keep trying to do this kind of stuff than go back into dramatic acting like i thought he was a bit miscast in fargo season four on fx you know in terms of netflix i think it's interesting that they live broadcast this inventized it as a, as a release you know a specific time that you could watch it uh this is smart they should do this for all kinds of stuff now most comedy specials won't have this kind of pull but netflix as well as something like disney plus I think it serves you really well to release something that's anticipated and that people know about, you know, like your big series week to week or something. It makes sense to release something at a time that people can congregate on and, and social can activate at the same time. Do what HBO does and own a night. Why does The Mandalorian come out on Disney Plus at 12 midnight Pacific time, 3 a.m. Eastern time? Why is that not 9 p.m. Wednesday when everyone could watch it at the same time? 
Netflix should be doing this as well on fr- maybe Friday nights, you know, or, or something. But just like I think like this shows that there is an audience for this, and obviously this was known. But like Netflix themselves, they're basically standard TV, they're the most subscribed to uh, series in the U.S. and in the world, and they're kind of like the channel surfing equivalent for people that don't have cable anymore. But by putting times on stuff, I think you're bringing people to the platform more regularly. You know, I, I think, or at least giving you more optionality with how people interact with you as a service. So I would love to see them continue this, but I'm also a proponent of week to week stuff. And Netflix really doesn't do that at all. So we'll see. But I mean, I'm sure most people as well will be watching this after the fact anyway, despite how successful it might have been on Saturday night. Obviously, I'm doing this right after, so I don't know how that went yet. But leave a comment as well. How did you feel about the broadcast and um, the live nature of it? Did you watch it live? Did you watch it later? Um, And yeah, for more comedy special reviews, more Netflix stuff, more movies, etc., TV, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Creed 3, the new film, directorial debut from its star, Michael B. Jordan, the ninth film in the Rocky franchise. It's been almost four and a half years, or about four and a half years since Creed 2 came out at the end of 2018. It's been a minute. And, you know, in that time, we have our third director in the Creed franchise, Ryan Coogler, uh, still involved producing-wise, and his brother actually is one of the co-writers this time around, Stephen Cable Jr., directed Creed 2, and now we have Michael B. directing Creed 3, his first time in the directing chair. Notably, Sylvester Stallone is not involved in Creed 3. Uh, he does not appear in the film, the first Rocky film that we don't see Rocky Balboa in. Uh, I think a part of that is he didn't love the creative direction, so he says, in terms of the, the darkness that Creed 3 gets into. But also, I think more obviously, like, Salone is in open warfare and conflict with the producer of the Rocky franchise because Salone wishes he owned the rights to the franchise and he doesn't. So that's why that is the way it is. But I don't think it's a big deal that we don't see Rocky because the Adonis Creed story trilogy, as it were, I think deserves some time focusing on Creed itself. And it's fine that we don't have Balboa. Could he have worked in the movie? Sure. But I don't think it's like a huge demerit that he's not there. Um, And Michael B., I think, just broadly does a good job in the directing chair. You know, I think, honestly, a lot of people maybe had some reservations about hearing he was going to helm this third Creed film just because, obviously, high bar with what Coogler did with Creed 1, one of the most effective, you know, reboots slash new sequels films ever in terms of franchise movies. Um that's a lot to live up to. And Michael B., I think, brought a lot of interesting flair to it, which I'll get into. But ultimately, the reason Creed 3 is successful is just because it's dynamitely acted once again. And a big part of that, of course, our new villain is played by none other than Jonathan Majors, the man of the year in Hollywood, it seems, you know, with Ant-Man, the Wasp, Quantum Mania, now Creed 3 at the end of the year for Searchlight Magazine Dreams and Awards Contender. Jonathan Majors is one of the great American actors we have right now, and it shows. And he is absolutely tremendous in Creed Three. He is the prime attraction in this movie, and is a great fit for this franchise, because what makes the Creed trilogy so interesting and so captivating is that these movies have such a rich connective tissue in their scenes that are not part of the set pieces. They transcend the traditional sports movie, boxing movie mold. And they still have tons of those cliches and those tropes that we expect from the Rocky franchise and from sports movies. But we love that they're there because everything else about these movies is so intelligent and so rich and so lived in. And I thought Creed 3 was really spectacular. I really enjoyed it. And Majors is a huge part of that. But Majors really is just fitting in to that DNA that the Creed movies give you. And I just had a really great time with it. You know, uh, I think it's an interesting way they kind of set it up, you know, with Adonis having this final fight quickly and then, you know, being retired, getting into management, being being a rich, retired boxer, which is obviously a very affluent life. And so much of this movie is about his his family life, you know, his relationship with Bianca, his wife, played by Tessa Thompson, and uh, their their daughter, who we who was born at the end of Creed Two, born deaf, of course, inheriting that, you know, condition that Bianca has and if it was really, really moving to be with the Adonis Creed family, you know, and 
just picking up with his, the daughter being aged up a few years and seeing them sign and just it felt it felt really per, uh, personal and I I've quite quite enjoyed that like that that through line you have there and another key aspect I think of this movie showing you its intent is early on you have this extended flashback scene uh, to early two thousands LA. Well, you, know, you hear Dr. Dre's The Watcher playing, fucking takes you right back, and you meet young Adonis, of course, played as a, as a child, or, or, you know, young teenager, and his childhood friend, Damian Anderson, the uh, younger version of who we will learn is Jonathan Major's adult character, and seeing some more of Adonis' backstory, quote-unquote, as a, you know, kid living in a group home and having a troubled, uh, you know, upbringing. And that, you know, kind of leading up to an inciting incident that happens with Dame. Um, and I think it's a really effective setup. And you know, we flash back to the present and adult Dame encounters Adonis after a long time away, locked up in prison. And the introduction to Majors on screen is one of the most thrilling scenes I've seen in a franchise movie in a long time, watching... Dame lean against Adonis's, I think it's a Rolls Royce, his, his car outside his gym, uh, his boxing gym that he runs now in retirement, watching Dame lean in. Like, obviously, we know Majors is so yoked at this point, absolutely hulked out, just a specimen of a man, looks amazing, completely ripped. Seeing him there, there's just a presence that Majors has, even when his back turned to Michael B. Jordan. But once they start talking and realizing who each other, once Adonis realizes who, Dame is. It's so so clear that Majors is just acting circles around Michael B. Jordan. I love Michael B. Jordan. He's a great movie star, but Michael B. Jordan is a phenomenal actor, and you can just see the limits of Michael B.'s range in some of these scenes where Majors is so so much better than him. But just what he can convey, I think, with his face, with his eyes, he conveys so much emotion, so much. Um, I think depth as an actor, right? you know, after that scene outside the gym, they go and have a bite to eat and catch up. And like in that moment, just like watching Major's guy's presence, just sitting in a booth at a restaurant with his face and the way they talk, it's a great scene. And Michael B holds his own, but it's clear who the star of these scenes are. Uh, star of these scenes is, and of course that's Major's. Um, you know, I think just this whole buildup to Dame, um, it's no surprise. Obviously, you've seen the choice in the marketing. They are going to fight. Dame um, is going to rise up, but like Dame being this, you know, local like amateur boxer that had his chance at athletic glory sapped away when he went to prison, and like that, that, that hunger and that 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 pain that he feels of making up for lost time and what was taken from him, like that energy is like really present in the performance Majors is giving. And the whole build-up to just him getting a shot to try and get into the game as an older boxer, I think it's so, so thrilling. Um, you know, leading up to this fight with Felix Chavez, which is Michael B's, like, prime boxing talent that he manages. That fight is really thrilling. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know that Dame is going to win and get that belt and level himself back into the game. You know that's going to happen. It doesn't matter that you know it's going to happen because... I think everything's so well earned. It's so effective. And that fight is, is I think, really uh, really gets you to that point. And then uh, I think right after that, pretty soon, you have um, Adonis confronting Dame at, like, Dame's, like, kind of celebratory, like, party out in L.A. And that's where Dame kind of, like, shows you, like, who he really is once he no longer needs Adonis in terms of his keeping that energy. And another great scene, and Major's just seeing this kind of like more brutish hulking guy uh in presence uh, you know out there you know dame just in life and it's directly uh simpatico with the way dame is as a boxer in the ring where he's kind of like lurching forward and like rushing like a bull kind of like mike tyson -y almost like the whole performance i think is really really cool um and you know i think from there you know the the ending fight, you know, we have another really great training montage where you see both Adonis and Dame training. You know, I love watching Jordan run up, I think, running Canyon in L.A. I love watching him tow a uh, 
plane with his body out in the desert. Sign me up for all the training montages. They're great. You know, um, Dame climbing ropes on the beach. Cool. Honestly, pretty effective L.A. movie, all things considered. Um, then you have that final fight where is Adonis going to be able to take back the belt? Um, coming out of retirement, effectively take back the belt? Or will Dame take him down and put an end to it all? And that fight, um, it's not like the best fight I've ever seen in the Rocky franchise. I wouldn't say that. But there's a clear stylistic choice that had kind of been like foreshadowed throughout the build-up to Creed 3, you know, release. And that would be that Michael B. Jordan is an anime fan. And there's some anime influence in the filmmaking here. You know, I think right off the bat, there's a flag to this when you see young Adonis in the early flashback. There's a Naruto like poster in his room in the group home. And I'm like, oh, or, or actually in his room at his mom's house. It's like, oh, nice. Makes sense. Um, but then from there, actually, actually, wait, no, it doesn't make sense. Because I think that's, that flashback took place in 2003 and Naruto did not exist in 2003. Oh loophole found it but anyway um when you watch that final fight they they uh, uh kind of recreate some like classic stuff from dragon ball z specifically in terms of these um these punches um where they both punch each other in the face at the same time as the bell rings as well as um majors hitting uh adonis right in the gut and you have a dance like lurching forward, like two of the kind of obvious like Dragon Ball Z homages, but just like overall, like more macro beyond just DBZ specific, like the anime influence in terms of where the camera is, how it focuses on tracking action, kind of pans in and around the fighting. It's cool. It's definitely a different flair for what we've seen from the Creed movies for sure. I think it does a really good job of communicating um, something, something a little different in terms of, you know, the kineticism of boxing. Um, there's one really clear choice in that that fight that I don't know if it totally worked for me. It's definitely a more polarizing aspect of the end of this movie, and that would be this kind of like a moment where during through the course of this you know long fight that Adonis and Dame are having in Dodger Stadium of all places, um, there's just one moment where like they kind of like are in, like it's like in Adonis's head or whatever. It's like black and white. They're in the ring and there's no one else there. And it's clearly like a dream sequence type of uh, imagined state as they're kind of going back at each other, yelling at each other, et cetera. And it's like a kind of like overtly obvious like metaphor for what they're what they got going on, I guess. And I just don't know if you ne- totally needed to, to do that or maybe it didn't need to be quite as long. It's pretty easy to understand like where all these characters are sitting and what they're fighting for. Like, I don't know if we totally needed that, but it, it didn't bother me. And then. Once the fight ends the way it ends, like the best stuff in this movie, again, the best stuff in this franchise is not watching that final fight. It's the scene after the final fight where Dame and Adonis talk in the rock fucking locker room and they sit next to each other uh, on the bench, you know, the locker benches and they just kind of talk about what's happened and how they feel about stuff. And it's like, that is what these movies are about is those kind of scenes, the connective tissue. I fucking love those scenes. Like I was like really moved by a few moments in this movie. Like I think there there are like moments where it gets a bit dusty. No doubt, da- no doubt. And man, I, again, like just hats off to Jonathan Majors. I think he's just a tremendous, tremendous actor. And I thought like that final scene in the locker room, he was again amazing. The way he can sit there and, and when he speaks, when he pauses, you know, like again, the presence is so consistently there as an actor. Just love it. Really can't wait for magazine dreams. Uh, yeah, so I would say overall it's a really spectacular film. I think it's better than Creed Two. I went and put it above Creed One. Thinking about it, um, hard hard to really match the I think the, the 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 intelligence of Creed One the first time around. But Creed Three has a lot of the qualities we like about the Creed films, you know, and you know one of the best if not the best like acting performance across the trilogy thus far for major. So this has been a big success so far. The opening weekend, like surpassing, really smashing those opening day tracking records. It's releasing the record record for the franchise in terms of opening. Um, So as much as this is kind of presents a lot of finality to the Creed series, I have a hard time feeling like the Rocky franchise is not going to come back given how strong it's moving. But let me know what you think about Creed 3. How'd you feel about Majors as an actor? Do you want to see more Creed or Rocky movies? 
and for more movie reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.